1: which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com.
2: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
1: To the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there.
0: This is a chance, of life When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal.
2: We are all on the same team. Know you're wrong you and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again.
0: Your defense has got to be better. Leave no great doubt tonight.
2: Great moments are born
3: Great
1: opportunity. Hello and welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast, where we believe that there is no algorithm for leadership, and so we interview great sports coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us be better leaders. Our great coach on this episode is Mike Thebo. Mike is an American basketball coach. He started his career as a scout with the LA Lakers in 1978 eventually becoming an assistant coach. He was working with the team in 1980 when they won the NBA championship. He then moved to the Chicago Bulls, where he worked as a director of scouting and assistant coach and was in the room when the Bulls chose Michael Jordan in the draft. He has gone on to work with the Atlanta Hawks, the New York Knicks, the Seattle Supersonics, the Milwaukee Bucks, and the Connecticut Sun, as well as being a part of the basketball staff for the USA women's team that won the Olympic gold medal in 2008. He was most recently the head coach of the Washington Mystics in the WNBA and led them to the 2019 championship. This is a masterclass of an interview, and some of the key takeaways for me were how honesty is the number one attribute that a coach at any level needs – And how, as a leader, you need to be bringing in people to be honest with you. How his time working at the LA Lakers when Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar were there taught him that it's never about you as the coach, but instead how well the team worked together. How your priority should be getting better at your current job, not looking for your next job. And he talks about how he had to learn this early in his career. And the importance of emotional control even if it is something that you are not particularly good at we were very lucky to get this interview with mike and i hope you enjoyed as much as we did and just before we go to the interview if you like what we do here at the great coaches podcast then head over to our website where you can find exclusive audio and video content as well as our insights database that has thousands of one to two minute videos from all of the great coaches we have interviewed talking about leadership topics like culture, communication and care. You can download the material and share it and hopefully bring a different perspective to the challenges that your team is facing. And you can find all of that at thegreatcoachespodcast.com. And now please enjoy our interview with Mike Thebo.
0: You're listening to the Great Coaches Podcast.
1: Well, good afternoon, Mike Thibault, and or rather, good morning, your time, and welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast.
3: Thank you. Glad to be here,
1: Mike. Very excited to talk to you about all things basketball today. I can see you've got the USA shirt on, and you're about to head off to camp. So I appreciate yeah. you. Appreciate you, ta- you know, giving us a little bit of your time before you head off.
3: About 24 hours, I'll be on that flight. So.
1: Well, could I start with something really simple then to get us going? Where are you today in the world? What have you been up to so far, and where's that flight headed to?
3: Um, I am in Washington, D.C., um, where I live year-round now. Uh, I'm actually in Virginia, across the river from Washington, D.C. Uh, We're a couple weeks removed from a... um, unsatisfying finish to our season because there's only going to be one satisfied team at the end. We lost in the playoffs to Seattle. Um, they, uh, they, they were better than us uh, when it counted. Uh, we had our chance in game one and uh, didn't get it done. So now I am preparing for USA Basketball Starts training camp uh, tomorrow night in Las Vegas um, for the World Cup in Australia. So that, a place near and dear to you. Uh, so we're headed to Sydney in about a week, uh, but we will be in Las Vegas uh, training this next week. I've got to take a little delay for a day uh, in the training at the end of the week. The, the Hall of Fame uh, ceremony is next weekend. And one of my former players, Lindsey Whalen, is being inducted. And one of my former uh, assistant coaches, Marianne Stanley, is being inducted as a coach and a former player. So uh, it's, it's a very busy and exciting basketball week. Uh, I'm glad I have USA Basketball this week to kind of get over the end of our season, Uh, but a lot to look forward to the next month.
1: Well, it is, and the weather in Australia will be fantastic. And the crowds, well, they should be pretty vocal cheering for the home team.
3: I would think so. And uh, they got the big return of Lauren Jackson coming back to their team. So a lot of people uh, excited in Australia about what their team is going to look like.
1: So, Mike, maybe I could start, actually. I know you're heading off to the Hall of Fame, but... When I was learning about you, the list of coaches that you have had first-hand experience to is quite extensive. I can see Ann Donovan, Paul Westhead, George Carl, of course John Wooden, and I'm sure there's many, many others. And I'd like to maybe just start by asking you, from your long and storied career up close with these great coaches, what is it you think that they do differently that sets them apart?
3: Um. I don't um, – it, it differently is, is a tough word because there's so many great coaches. Um, they all have a little bit different styles. But I think the first thing that always jumps out to me, and it's what I tell young coaches too, is that you have to be yourself. And I think that all of these coaches, sometimes through trial and error, um, trying to figure out things, is they have to identify their own personality that they are true to uh, before you can be consistent with your players. And I think that's, you know, there's principles that each coach has, and they're all a little bit different. Um, But, you know, I'll give you a a different example. You know, Paul Westhead um, was a person who fully believed in transition fast break basketball. And he hung his hat on it. And, you know, he knew that there would be criticism at times of, you know, how he played or you should do this, you should do that. He knew what he was comfortable with and how he wanted to teach. And so he stuck to his principles. And so, you know, he could change up, you know, with maybe a little bit different personnel um, and, you know, tinkered with it as he went along in his career. But that's who he was. John Wooden uh, was a kind of back-to-basics fundamentals coach, and he believed in certain things. And so he developed his UCLA high-post offense, and he based – most of what he did around that. And he had principles, and his players had to, you know, uh, work fundamentally every day in the basics of that offense in order to um, be consistent. But I think they all um, had an authenticity about them that they just, when they got up in the morning, they were going to be the same person they they were the day before as far as showing a consistent face to their players. Um, You know, a lot of varying different personalities, you know, some more lighthearted, some more serious, um, but they got comfortable in their own skin.
1: Mike, I've got this great quote from you. I'd like to read it to you actually before I ask the question. And you say, I go back to where I first started coaching. I was coaching high school sophomores. We won a championship, but I was just as happy for those players as I was for our Mystics players. Because players on any team go through the same kind of ups and downs in a season and I think as a coach you're a teacher, you're a father, you're whatever. And it was the last part of that quote that really caught my eye and I I wanted to ask you in the context of where you are today with the Mystics, what is the role of a coach?
3: I I don't think it's changed. I think that, you know, times have changed, social media has changed things, players change but you're a teacher first uh, or a mentor. Um, and, you know, I think the really good coaches, and this goes back to your first question too, is that the games are all great. The fans see the games, but the joy of coaching comes in the day-to-day grind of teaching and watching a player develop a new skill or improve something that they've had or, you see that kind of light bulb go on where they've grasped a a concept that's been, you know, hard to get. And I think, you know, just like a teacher in a classroom or a music instructor or, you know, a mentor in any other field, you want to see that light go on for somebody or, or, or make a leap. And I think that that is where the true joy of coaching comes from. You know the wins are nice, and they are the 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 final exam a lot of times. But it's in the it's in the work that goes into. Um, you know the average person isn't going to see that musician who plays the piano uh, sit in front of that piano for you know six hours at a time and and go over and over the same scales. That same basketball player who's shooting a hundred free throws at a time and you know a hundred three point shots and a hundred layups in a day just to improve their skill. And so when you see breakthroughs for players or see them get better over a period of time, uh, I think that's a part of it. And then the other part of the coaching, uh, and everybody, it's its a cliche about talking about the journey, you know, to enjoy the journey as much as the result. But I think that's so true. A good team is like a family. And you have to have this... Um, camaraderie and you have to have this we're in this together feeling that also people don't see as a general rule you know they see the hugging on a court you know when a big play happens you know the high fives or whatever it is but it's the day-to-day grind of getting through things and the you know the journey you take whether it's in the airport together or going to practice on the bus or those kinds of things that's all part of that experience too and you know you're, you're the, the band leader when you're going through that. And, and you know, I, I said this to a team, oh gosh, when I was in Connecticut, and probably I said this probably 17 or 18 years ago. And one of my players asked in front of the team, you know, like when you look back on all this someday, you know, what will be important to you? And I said, I hope that someday the experience you have when you're older and you got kids or whatever you're sitting on your back porch one day and you say, you know, I remember that experience and it, and it gives me a warm feeling and I can look back and say it was a great thing. So about five years ago, I got a phone call from a former player who played in Connecticut and she said to me, coach, I'm sitting on my back porch right now and I'm having that moment you talked about. And she said, I just was remembering all the fun that group had as we were going through that season, she said, I thought I didn't need to call and tell you that. And that really made my day, week, month, whatever you want to call it at that time, because, you know, then you know that maybe you're making a difference beyond just the X's and O's of the game.
1: Mike, I know that one of your team rules is to try and have something to laugh at every day, and you're quite overt about it. But but why? Was there something, was there an event that sort of taught you about the joy of laughter within a team?
3: It was more observing other players, teams, coaches, who I thought looked miserable. Um, And it wasn't just they looked miserable that day, but as a general rule that they, they were losing the reason that they picked up a basketball in the first place. You know, this is a kid's game that, you know, most people who play it, you know, at our level, picked it up on the playground or in a gym or in their driveway when they were young. And it was the joy of the petition of bouncing the ball and shooting it and hanging out with your teammates or playing pickup on a Saturday morning or doing all those things. And um, so the joy has to be there for just the game itself. It can't just be because you get paid to do it. And part of that joy is enjoying what you're doing every day. And, you know, you have to have seriousness, seriousness is to be good, but you also have to have a time and place for, you know, making fun of yourselves. You make mistakes. You know, some of them are they're just funny, um, you know, plays that happen or things that go on. And so I don't, I don't do it the same now, but I've had teams where I thought they were overly serious and i literally used to have different players i told them you got to come with a joke to start practice tomorrow um or i've had practical jokers on my team that were good at um, diffusing tense moments at the right time or players and coaches you need to be able to poke fun you know be the or poke up you know i just think that's part of things on an even keel and it and it keeps things real every day i mean you know we're, we're not you know Uh, inventing the wheel or curing cancer, we're playing basketball. Mike, in
1: 1989, you become the head coach and GM of the Omaha races. Now, I imagine at the time, this dual leadership role must have led to a lot of learning through, as you pointed out earlier on, trial and error. But how did that that first experience back with, with Omaha, how did that change your approach to leadership?
3: Um, I'll back up one step from that. Um, it, it, I actually spent one year in Calgary shortly right before that, uh, in a league called the world basketball league it was for six, four and under players. And I had to do the same thing there. So that gave me a year of preparation for Omaha. But what, what Omaha did for me, um, you know, I was there eight years and, uh, I actually ended up becoming president of the team at one point. And so I was in charge of business and, I learned a whole bunch of things. I learned a lot more patience. Um, I learned, um, time management. Um, and you know, I had young kids at the time and, and probably that was one of our more difficult times as a family because I couldn't turn it off as a general rule because you'd come home and there would be calls from the business side or what do you think about this marketing promotion? And then you're, you know, in the CBA at those times, which is, you know, for fans that don't know, it's, uh, it's the G league now and you had players going up and down to the NBA and you were looking at roster every week you were adding or subtracting a player. And so I learned a, to roll with the punches. Uh, you couldn't, I learned you can't control everything as much as you like to think you can. Um, I learned to manage my time uh, because I had to. Um, my family still needed me. Um, my wife was terrific about, you know, dealing with some things that, you know, normally both parents would deal with at the same time. And we kind of figured out as we did that, um, you know, how we're going to make this work long term. And then I also used that time there as kind of an experimental lab. For how you run a team, how you coach, Um, I got a chance during that that time. There, you weren't in front of you know, ten thousand people every night. You were playing in front of three or four thousand, and you had players coming and going. And so, I learned how to be flexible. I learned that I could experiment, and I wasn't going to get critiqued every day by fifteen media people. Uh, We had our one beat writer that followed us, and you know, a couple local TV stations, but. I could try to figure out who I was as a coach. Um, And then the GM part of it, I I could learn more about how you put a team together, how pieces fit. You're not doing fantasy sports, you know, where you're just going on stats. you got to have chemistry. you got to make players, you know, fit the puzzle with each other. And so I learned a lot about team dynamics uh, and how you, you know, even though you may have a more talented player, they don't fit that group. And so, you know, in the CBA and the G League, there's a lot of trades and there's a lot of movements. Uh, I had a lot of time there where, you know, because guys got called up to the NBA the day before, I had seven players of practice. I learned a, I learned a lot of three-on-three and four-on-four drills uh, to sustain, sustain it. And I also learned that, that you know, for for good and bad. I mean, I only had one assistant coach and a trainer. It's not like the staffs we have nowadays. So I was doing a lot of the jobs that an assistant coach would do, as well as be the head coach. But I also appreciated that even more because when I had a chance to have a bigger staff, I knew how to you know sort out roles to take pressure off not only me but off of each other and share the work a little bit. So there was it was a daily learning process.
1: So there's Omaha, and then. There's a few other organizations you've been involved with. I might just read off the list here: uh, LA Lakers, Chicago Bulls, Atlanta Hawks, New York Knicks, Seattle SuperSonics, the Milwaukee Bucks, the Connecticut Sun. I mean, Mike, it's such an impressive list of organizations that you've seen up close. And so, when you when you sit back and you think about these wonderful organizations, these world famous organizations, you've 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 been lucky enough to to work with. What have you identified as the, the building blocks of high-performing organizations?
3: I think, um, and I've kind of alluded it to it before, but it's an organizational thing as much as it is a coach too. I think that um, you have to know who you are, um, kind of what you stand for, for day-to-day principles um, you know, of that group Um, it's funny, I, I, am a, I'm a coach that gets roped into rebuilds or reconstructs of organizations. And so I walked into a Lakers organization as a scout first and then an assistant coach who had a good identity about winning, but they hadn't gotten over the hump. I mean, we had Kareem, we had Norm Nixon and others, but until we got Magic Johnson, um, that we couldn't reach the the ultimate goal of winning championships. And so the first lesson is, as a coach, uh, don't think it's about you. Um, You have to have great players to win. Um, And one or two might not be enough. Uh, You have to have great players and they have to fit together and they have to be willing to share the spotlight and share the load and the accolades and everything else that go with it. And Magic was a facilitator for everybody in that regard. Uh, he could make Kareem feel happy about playing each day. And so you need, you need great players, and they also have to be the hardest workers. So that's one of the things about an organization, is that it's not about the coach, it's not about the GM, it's not about the owner of the team, it's about, you know, it's a player's league. Um, you need good coaches. You need all those people to fit, but it has to be everybody and understanding uh, what it takes to win at the highest level. And so the Lakers figured that out. When I went from there to the Bulls, I went to basically a team, an organization that was just trying to turn it around and figure it out. They had been bad for a couple of years, and yet they had a good coach in Jerry Sloan who just, they didn't have enough good players. So Jerry Sloan got fired and Paul West had got the job and I went with him and my job was to come in. And one of the reasons the job intrigued me was um, it was a chance to make a name for a team and for myself as a young coach and talent evaluator. I came in as a coach and director of player personnel was to build this thing, you know, from what had not been very good. And so, you know, I looked at some of our Laker principles, but the first obvious thing to me is Jerry Sloan might have have been the coach of the year and only won 30 out of 80 games because he didn't have talent. And so the very simple thing is you need talent. And so part of my job was to go about reconstructing that. So, you know, learning from organizations is um, there are ways to spend money. There are philosophies, but if you don't have great players, it doesn't matter. You could have the greatest coach in the world. Jerry Sloan won Coach of the Year a lot more times when he coached in Utah, but he had Carl Malone and John Stockton. And he'll be the first to tell you that. You know, great players. Uh, And so we had to rebuild. Uh, I only spent a short amount of time with Atlanta and New York, more on the player develop, you know, player personnel scouting side of it. But those were organizations that weren't very good at the time. They were trying to find an identity. And I wasn't there long enough to be a part of anything one way or the other, but I got a chance to observe, you know, what it takes uh, to, to try to go get new talent. And so when I went to Milwaukee, we were in that same mode to some degree that we were in Chicago. When I went, we had a little more talent. They just hadn't learned how to win together. And George was really good at um, identifying you know, how to use individual players to the best of the group. And so, you know, he he designed what he did uh, to fit the players, of better players too. Um, and so, you know, when I went back to coaching my own teams in Connecticut and Washington, they were reclamation picks. And Connecticut was more talented when I took it than I was when I came to Washington, not, not anywhere near the talent but they hadn't learned how to win. So you had to install those basic principles of how you work together. Let's make use of the best players. Let's go get another player that facilitates. Connecticut's a great example that they had talent, but they had been mediocre. Well, then we add Lindsey Whalen to the mix, a young point guard, much like magic in the sense of, you know, makes everybody happy, makes their jobs easier on the court. All of a sudden things change. You need that dynamic person to, to make it go. and. You know, that's that's a really I mean, long winded answer, but it's it's a very consistent, simple thing. Get great players who like each other, who love being on the court and make the pieces fit together.
2: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
1: Mike, your wife Nancy says that, quote, you have a lot of empathy, but tend to be stoic and composed. And it made me wonder if there was a list, if I was to ask you to list out the most important attributes for a leader in the WNBA. Based on your experience, what would be at the top of that list?
3: Yeah, and it wouldn't wouldn't even just be the WNBA. I think it's consistent. The WNBA, I coach it no differently than I would in the NBA or college or high school or anything else. I think the first thing is to be honest with yourself and be honest with your players. Don't be afraid to tell the truth. You know, sometimes you have to, you know, Sugarcoated a little bit, or, or your approach and how you say it, but players instinctively know if you're trying to con them. And I think that you need to be honest with them, honest with their skills and what you expect from them. I think you have to be honest with yourself about the level of play that you have, how good your players are. You need to do constant self evaluation uh, of your own personal things, of your staff. And of your organization in general, you just can't assume things are going on, I, I, going the same uh, without reevaluating. I like bringing in people from the outside to, you know, who are basketball people who watch my team and will tell me the truth. You know, you guys stink at this or you're good at this or, you know, I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is you need to be consistent. You ask your players to be consistent um, in your behavior or how they act with each other or how they act emotionally on the court, you have to be able to do that as a coach yourself. Um, you know, and, and, and I'm, I'm emotional at times. I think, you know, my wife was being kind because I think, um, I, I have a, a lot of passion. I have to learn how to rein it in sometimes, um, but your, but your players also need to see that part of you, too. I think that the stoic part comes in not overreacting to some things. But I think there's times you need to light a fire under people and make them understand that this particular thing as a coach matters to you. It, it's important. And that they need to see the same importance. And so I think, um, you know, you have to balance it. The other part of that is, you know, you only have so many opportunities or times in a year where you know you can kind of use that uh, chip that you know that you get somebody riled up and you get them going about. I, I, you can't do that every day, or loses its it loses its, uh, it loses its um, impact, probably on anything. Um, I think you have to, you know, pick and choose your spots for you know, the fire-em-up speech or, you know, uh, whatever it is that gets everybody going. I'm not a big believer in these rah-rah pregame pep talks. Um, usually they happen 30 minutes before the game, and I found most, most players have forgotten them 10 minutes after you gave it. So, you know, I think that, that your preparation for a game is in the work you've done. I don't think you can have a team that doesn't have emotion, but I think you also have to have a team that can play – calmly when it's most needed and so you know you have to I think as a coach one of the things I've learned you have to pick your spots um and you know tell the truth be consistent pick your spots uh and know what they know what you're doing you're you're not going to be able to fake people um you know you do your homework I think our players know even from my staff that my staff has put the time in watching film and studying that you know, if if a coach on my staff talks to a player about something, the player goes, "Okay, they've done their homework." I think that's important.
1: Well, can I talk about spots, preparation, and lighting a fire? Actually, because in 2019, your team wins the WNBA championship, but the road to that victory started much earlier. In fact, I understand it was the pain of missing out in 2018 in in Seattle to Seattle that drove that team. I'd really like to know, Mike. What did you learn about motivation through that period?
3: I think um, almost every player that makes it to this level is, for the most part, highly driven. They're obviously talented or they don't get to this level. Um, They've been competitive to get to this level. But there sometimes is this understanding that needs to come of how hard it is. You know, there's that saying that, you know, if it was easy, everybody would do it. It's it's the true thing when you think you've played really hard or you think you've worked on things um, and you come up short and you say, you know, should have, could have, would. I could have been a little bit better at this. I could have done that. And actually in 2017, we lost in the semifinals to Minnesota who won the championship. And then we got swept by Seattle, as you said. And our players knew there were a couple parts of that. Number one, uh, you know, we didn't have um, home court advantage. Um, and that would have been nice um, in both of those years. And so the difference in home court advantage sometimes over the course of a season is one or two games. And did you let something slip away that you could have? halfway through your season, and at the end of the year, you regret it. Um, I think the other part is you need something when you go through the offseason. And our offseason is really long. We're not playing this 80-game NBA schedule. You know, we're playing 36 games or 34 games back then. And so, you know, in that long offseason, when you're thinking about, you know, the shoulda, coulda, wouldas, are you going to be able to push yourself through to – do the little extra to become a little better. Are you going to go from being a 79% free throw shooter to an 84% free throw shooter? And what does that look like? Am I going to be able to finish around the basket a little bit more with my offhand? Uh, when the game is on the line, I'm getting jumped, bumped, you know, um, jostled and bumped and everything else in traffic. Am I going to be able to finish that play? And so our whole thing was, you know, Can you be just a couple possessions better a game? Because if you can, and each person is collectively, that adds up quickly. And so, our motivation was that each person's going to be a little bit better. You don't have to, you're probably not going to be 20% better or 15% better as a player, maybe if you're young, but can you get one skill better? Can you be a little bit better at this? And if you all commit to that, then we'll be better. And we did that. We were better. It's ironic that, you know, I I mentioned free throw shooting. I wasn't thinking about it specifically when I first said it to you, but, you know, we set an all-time professional basketball record, male, female, NBA, whatever that year as a free throw shooting team, we shot 87% from the line. And it won some of those games at the end of games during the season that we did not win the year before. And they prided themselves on that. And they, you know competed with each other with those kinds of things. And so I think that had a lot to do with, you know, the daily grind that I'm going to be a little bit better and it paid off.
1: Mike, there's this theme that runs through your career. And you you embrace change, but in service of your own personal development, you move, but then you stay put for multiple years and you evolve and you, you take in learning and you seem to roll it forward into your next role. And I'm wondering what advice you would now have for younger coaches when it comes to their own personal development?
3: I have some, I've thought about that a lot. I think the first thing is, um, you can't spend your life as a coach, always looking for your next job. You know, that one thing that's a little better. I see it a lot, uh, in young assistant coaches in college, you know, they're out recruiting, they're doing this, uh, you know, trying to get ahead, but they're always networking. They're always, you know, networking is nice, but they're always trying to think, you know, where my next job is. That could be in the back of your mind, but that can't be your priority. Your priority should be, how do I get better at my current job? How do I help this group better? How do I make me better as a coach? Do I need to study more? Do I need to look at new ideas? Am I going to be open to new ideas? What What can I learn from this coach on this other team that I'm scouting? you know, that, you know, we're getting ready to play them. What can I learn from them? And and so my biggest thing is don't be in a rush. Um, And I got caught. uh, That was the biggest dilemma for me about leaving L.A. to go to Chicago. I had to make sure I was doing it for the right reasons. And because I could have stayed in L.A. for a long time, probably, and we would have kept winning. Um, But I had advice about going to learn a little bit more. Uh, and, and kind of prove myself in a bad situation where, where, you know, I learned from it and maybe people would pay attention, but that's the one time I think probably I left, um, thinking about my next job and I didn't make a mistake, but it, it, it kind of reminded me, I got to know why I'm doing this. Um, I think, you know, we live in a society to now where it's instant gratification, um you know we get judged I mean you see you know the WNBA was I've been in the WNBA now 20 years and for about 15 or 16 years every single offseason I was asked is the WNBA going to survive and you know are you going to be out of business and it was one of those things that my answer was well people ask the NBA that every year that they went through and all the franchise changes and you know, a lot of people nowadays don't remember the Fort Wayne Pistons that are now the Detroit Pistons or the Buffalo Braves that became the L.A. Clippers that became – or the San Diego Clippers that became the L.A. Clippers. So, and so if everybody had judged the NBA on its first 15 or 10 years, they would have been out of business. And yet it's the same thing individually about coaching. You know, you, you're going to make some mistakes. You're going to move around a little bit, but don't be in a hurry to just – judge what you're doing by the first result. You know, do you have patience to, to, to last a while? Um, coming here to DC, um, you know, I took a job that the previous two years they were six and 28 and five and 29. And, you know, the first year we made a big jump. We won we won 17 games and everybody goes, it's fixed. It's good. And I knew darn well, we probably spoiled people because, We had won more games than we really were as good as. We played harder than the previous group did. We played with more enthusiasm, but we weren't all that much more talented. And until we became more talented, until we fixed some other things, um, you know, it it wasn't going to pay off. And it didn't pay off until we added a couple great players. Back to my very first statement about great players. You need to have great players. Well, getting Elena Deladon and Christy Tolliver in an offseason That changed us from being good to great. And so, you know, I'm telling young coaches, it's not going to happen all at once. Patience, you know, is a virtue that everybody's preached for their whole lives. But it's true. If you don't have the patience to see something through, then you're always going to be unhappy. I, I know coaches that they were always looking for the next thing. And I never saw them as contented or happy people. They couldn't live in that moment of enjoying what they were doing right then. And so that's my biggest advice for young coaches. And then the the other part of it is be a sponge, be curious, be inquisitive, ask questions, watch other people, um, be observant, learn new ways to do things. Um, I'm I'm about to be 72 years old, and I can tell you I probably learned five or six new things in the last month that I would do a little bit differently or I want to change this drill or do something. If you aren't willing to do that and and if you're set in your ways – you're not going to get better.
1: Mike, I understand it was your daughter who first said to you that we, meet, we need more focus on women's basketball. The game's come a long way, as you just said then, but I guess if it's co- to continue to grow, what would you point out as the main priorities for the coming decade?
3: Um, some are individual skill things. Some are big picture. I think that on the individual side, <clears throat> players continuing to – uh do what we seem to be doing right now we're bigger faster stronger uh as athletes in the women's game right now you know the average post player when i came in the league probably was six three six four we have all these six 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 seven players now who are athletic can handle the ball you know you have um more versatility uh you have you know elena Deladon, a brianna stewart and asia wilson uh, John Cole Jones, all these players who are 6'6", six, 6'5", six, six, who can shoot the three, they can post up, they can do all these things. Lauren Jackson in Australia is one of the first of that group. Uh, I thought I think she helped change the game, but you got to keep evolving as a player. You can't let coaches when you're young put you in a box and just because you're big say, well, you're a back-to-the-basket post player. Uh, I, I think, you know, you you need young players to develop as athletes, as well as basketball players, you know, jumping and sprinting and running and landing and all those things uh, are going to be important uh, to injury prevention, to body development. I think that's part of it. I think the, the next part of it is that players need to be students uh, of the game and watch more of their own peers, of uh, the NBA, of you know, international play, and, you know, continue to learn new ways to get better, uh, both as teams and coaches. And players, and then the last part is a more global thing for the general public. Um, we have a much more aligned acceptance of women's sports now than we did, but it's still not there. Um, you know, we're seeing uh, TV um, programming take on more and spend more and, and pay more for the rights to women's sports. That's going to be the difference. You know, everybody says, why can't we pay our players more? Well, we're not going to be able to pay them more until TV pays us more, and I think that that's the next big horizon that you know has to be hurdled as far as the game. We need more parents to encourage their kids, whether they're boys or girls, to watch and appreciate women's sports, Uh, not just basketball, but women's sports in general. And I think we're seeing more of that. We're seeing more dads coaching their daughters and you know it used to be a, you know, you know the, the 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 old image of a father wanting to have a son and coach their son you got a lot of dads now who are just as happy to coach their daughters and see their progress and that's been a big change but i i i i find one other thing that's interesting out there if women want to have more rights for women athletes and more appreciation for women's sports Women need to take up the mantle as much as anybody. Um, It's interesting in the United States right now, 50% of the NFL football watching population is women. Can you imagine that would be what that would do for the WNBA? That we need moms and dads to take their kids to events, to not want free tickets, to pay for, you know, to go to a game. because. You know, I think there's been this image out there is that, you know, I'm willing to pay big dollars to go to an NBA game or an NFL game. But we trivialize the women's game if we're not willing to do the same thing. And that has stuck out to me on the business side more than anything else. You know, if you're willing to spend, you know, $14 or $15 to go to a movie, why are you looking for a ticket half that price to go to a pro women's basketball game or a college women's basketball game? You know, you have to give it the same credence that you would something else. You cannot devalue the product. And I think that's, you know, another step that we need to take. And I, I have those discussions with our fans when we do business of basketball thing. You know, fans are wanting, you know, free this and free that. But you want our players to get paid more. Well, you can't have it both ways. There is a cost to doing business. And so, you know, I think that that's a reality that needs to be addressed if we want women's professional sports to succeed. Because if it does succeed and it's on TV and it will trickle down to every level of women's sports. Um, and, And I just feel that that's, you know, somewhere we need to go with it.
1: Mike, you've been so generous with your time today. I know you're racing to catch a plane. So I've got one final question, and I'd like to start it with a quote, actually, because you say you prefer the individual success of a player than the coaching thing, end quote. And I guess in the distant future, if you ever retire, what would you like your legacy for these individuals to be?
3: Yeah, and I, and I think that, that quote is, I, I like the individual and the team as opposed to the the, the legacy of your coach. Um, I would like, kind of back to what I said early on, for players to look back and say, this coach had my best interests at heart. I learned how to be a better basketball player, but I also learned how to be a better adult, a human being. Um You know, as as I go through this, uh, I want players to think beyond themselves and um, I want an appreciation for what they've done. And so, you know, I'm not the most religious person, but I'm a big believer that you treat others, you know, the golden rule of treat others like you would want to be treated. And I want players to come away from an experience of being coached by me that I've lived up to that that I want them to uh, know that I had their best interest at heart and that I cared and that I'm, I'm going to enjoy talking to them and observing them five or 10 years after they're done playing, see what kind of parent they are, what kind of, you know, wife or husband they are, Um, you know, I, I get I get a lot of enjoyment out of you know seeing former players and how they're succeeding or what they're doing, um, but I want them to walk away from being coached by me or by my staff saying that was a great experience. That's that's what I would like. The wins and losses come because of that, um, you know. And and you're not going to always have the best. There's only one happy team at the end of every year in, in a league. The one that wins the championship, and not everybody's going to win it. But I do want them to say, this was worthwhile.
1: Mike, I think enjoyment, treating others like you want it to be treated and worthwhile is a pretty good place to finish. So thank you so much for your time today. All the best in Australia. I hope that you come second. I really do.
3: <laughs> I might not ever be coaching again if we come in second.
1: <laughs> and I'll be watching on from afar. But I really appreciate your time today, Mike. Hi everyone, you have been listening to the great coach Mike Thebo. I hope you got a lot out of Mike's thoughts and found a couple of ideas that you can bring to your own locker room, boardroom, or dinner table for discussion. When I listened back, some of the other key highlights for me were how he worked at learning to manage his time early in his coaching career and in parallel learning that he didn't have to control everything and how These two things came together to help him have more balance in his family and work life. The importance of joy to him as a value and how he tries to start each practice with a joke, how a good team is like a family and has a deep sense of camaraderie and his advice to young coaches to just be themselves and not a different version of someone else. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And just before we go, if you have any feedback then please let us know. Just like Scotty H, who said, great interviews, wonderful insights from such a broad selection of people in sports. Thanks, Scotty. The interaction with the people around the world who listen gives us great energy. And so if you have any feedback or comments, please let us know. And if they're positive ones, then please let your friends and family know too. All the details on how to connect with us are in the show notes or on our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com.
0: it.